Oh, good morning, church. Um, it was a great uh, encouragement for me this week to receive um, a WhatsApp from our brother Augustine in Ghana, uh, who's doing very well. He spent the last week or so in the west of the country uh, with a friend of his who has responsibility for, can you believe it, 32 churches. I find it difficult enough to cope with one. How do you cope with 32? I think it was a bit of a shock. But anyway, he's returned to the city now and he's doing student ministry for the next few months uh, before he goes to England and hopefully enrols in the Cornhill training course. But he did ask me to send you all his warmest greetings and he remembers with great fondness his time here with us. So I do hope you've got John chapter 5 open in front of you and also the uh, white bulletin with the outline because I think you will find that helpful. And I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, your word is a priceless treasure. But in order for us to see it as it really is, the word of God, we do need your help. And we pray that you would give clarity to speaker and to hearer alike. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So John 5, 1 to 15, do you want to get well? Uh, Lourdes is a small town in southwest France um, in, I think it was February 1858. Uh, a 14-year-old girl called Bernadette thought that she saw visions of a beautiful lady and uh, it was later decided that thus this must have been Mary, the mother of Jesus. Uh, The story goes that the mysterious lady appeared to Bernadette 18 times and on one occasion she told her to dig at a certain spot and that uh, a spring would bubble up and that she should drink the water. Uh, The water was believed, of course, to have tremendous healing powers and ever since people from all over the world have come to Lourdes for healing. So the population of Lourdes is normally only around 15,000 people. But can you believe it? It has no less than 270 hotels. That's more than any other town or city in France apart from Paris. Because every year, 5 million people travel to Lourdes. As you can imagine, the streets are full of gift shops and souvenir stores and it's a major part of the tourist industry in that part of France. And yet, of course, there's something very sad, very tragic, even rather ugly about the whole thing. Because repeated tests have shown that the water from this spring has no special healing properties whatsoever. Now, in our passage this morning, the action takes place at Bethesda in Jerusalem. And in the first century, Bethesda was the Lord of Jerusalem. And the reason was that there was a pool there about 100 metres long and 50 metres wide. It was originally built as a reservoir to capture the winter rains but it was also fed by an underground stream. 
And that stream used to flow intermittently, not constantly. And so from time to time there was a bubbling or an agitation in the pool as the underground stream poured water into it. But over the years, of course, a a legend developed to explain this rather curious bubbling or stirring of the water. What was it? Well, if you read the beginning of our passage carefully, and I hope you did, you'll notice something really rather unusual. Because the NIV moves from verse 3 to verse 5 and leaves out verse 4. That is because the experts believe that verse 4 was written rather later than the rest of the book. Indeed, it might not have been written by John at all. But verse 4 is helpful because it describes the legend that arose in the first century to explain the bubbling of the water. So follow me closely. In verse 3, John says, A great number of disabled people used to lie by the pool, the blind, the lame, and the paralysed. Why were these poor people there? Well, glance down to the footnote at the bottom of the page in the left-hand column, because the footnote supplies the missing text, the missing verse 4. It says that this crowd of disabled people waited for the moving of the waters. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease he had. So that, you see, is why this great crowd of people were there. They had heard and believed the legend about the water. And that's why Bethesda was the Lord of Jerusalem. All these sick people were placing their hope in a myth, in a legend, in a lie that could never make them well. Now, before we go any further, uh, you also need to know that this passage begins a new section in John's Gospel. In the opening chapters, we've seen how Jesus came to replace the old traditions of Judaism. So, he changes the ceremonial water of cleansing into wine, Uh, He tells the most senior man in the religious establishment that he needs to be born again. And he goes out of his way to give the living water of salvation to a fallen Samaritan woman, an outsider, someone that every Jew would have said was cut off hopelessly from all God's promises to Israel. And now in chapter 5 we're entering what the scholars call the festival cycle of the Gospel. And so for the next few chapters, the Lord Jesus is going to be present at a number of festivals. And he's going to be showing that he is everything that these festivals were pointing to. So please notice, will you, in verse 1 of our passage that we're told that this miracle happened during a Jewish feast or festival. We're not told what particular festival it was, 
But we are told that this miracle or sign took place on the Sabbath. And what happens here, you see, is going to teach us something about how Jesus fulfills the Sabbath. How Jesus is everything the Sabbath was pointing to. Now, as we come to the text, I want you please to picture the scene at the pool at Bethesda. Uh, You can visit the pool at Bethesda today. I haven't done it, but I'm told it's something really rather special. And there's a great sense of peace and tranquility about it. But that is not how it was in Jesus' day. Just use your imagination. Uh, Imagine that pitiful crowd of broken, desperate humanity. Imagine the overcrowding, the squalor, the noise, the smell, the panic to be the first into the water, and all of these people believing a lie. Now that, of course, is a picture of our world today, isn't it? Of course, it's not the only way of looking at the world, but you've got to admit it's realistic. A multitude of of invalids. Beneath the facade that so many people put up, the front that they show to their friends, we are living in a world of damaged, disabled, suffering people who don't know the Lord, but who are believing various lies, myths and legends about the meaning of life and about how to be whole. But the truth, of course, is they are spiritually blind, they're limping through life not knowing who they are or why they're here, and by themselves they're powerless to change because they are spiritually paralysed. Now that is Bethesda. It is an utterly tragic scene, depressing and sad, except, except for one figure in the crowd, Jesus of Nazareth. Apparently nobody recognised him. Jesus seems to have been there alone, because you'll notice in the text there's no mention of the disciples. But there he is, The Son of God, full of infinite compassion, full of healing power, able to transform the lives of even the most hopeless cases. What's Jesus going to do? Why is Jesus making this particular hospital visit? What has it got to do with you and me this morning? Well, I want you to notice three things with me in the passage. And the first is the question we weren't expecting in verses 1 to 7. The man in this passage, I'm sure you'll agree with me, was in a very sorry state indeed. In verse 5, John tells us that he had been an invalid for 38 years. Now that, of course, would be terrible enough today, wouldn't it, even with all the advantages of modern medicine. But in Jesus' day, 
Physical disability was a death sentence. It meant that you were utterly paralysed economically, socially, intellectually, and you were a total liability to the community with no hope of anything better. But it was actually even worse than that, because invalids only had limited access to the temple. So to be paralysed physically also meant being paralysed spiritually. And in Jesus' day, to be excluded from the spiritual life of the nation at the temple was to be as good as dead. So, like everybody else, this man had come to the pool at Bethesda hoping for a miracle, But what's so very interesting about this man is that unlike all the other individuals we've met so far, in verse 5, please look at it, John describes him simply as one who was there. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't give him a name. He doesn't tell us anything about his family. He doesn't even give us a description of his disability. Now, don't misunderstand, this is an actual historical event. But the complete absence of any personal details about the man very strongly suggests that John is teaching us something really important about the condition of everybody who hasn't experienced the grace of God in Jesus Christ. What is it? Well, in our series, we've already seen that John's Gospel is supremely a book about faith. John gives us lots of stories about people who came to faith in Christ. And so here, I think we would expect the Lord Jesus to say to this man, will you believe in me? But instead, in verse 6, Jesus asks a very different question. Jesus asks him, do you want to get well? Now you might think, well hang on a moment, that's a rather silly question. I mean of course he wants to get well, that's why he's at the pool. But think about it. He's been there for 38 years. Is it really likely that no one at any point in those years had been around to help him just once. Was he the only person in Jerusalem who hadn't heard about all the marvellous miracles that Jesus had been doing at the Passover only a short time before? I think not. No, there was a certain willfulness in this man's continued disability. And I think what clinches it is that when Jesus asks him, do you want to get well, instead of grabbing the opportunity with both hands, he can only complain, I have no one to help me. Now that is very revealing, isn't it? Friends, the question that the Lord Jesus asks this man lies at the very, very heart of the Christian message. Because the Gospel teaches us that we cannot be whole, we cannot be complete, 
We cannot be healed of all our brokenness and sin without Jesus Christ. And of course that's a message we can't hear too often. Cape Town is absolutely full of people who know that their lives are not right and that something is missing. They might have a secure job, uh, they might have no major financial worries, they may be in good physical health, but they can't escape the feeling that their lives are incomplete and they can't find an answer. And all the time, Jesus is saying to them, if you want to get well, I am the answer. Is it the pain of a broken relationship? Is it an addiction that's ruining your life? Is it a bad temper you can't control? If you want to get well, says Jesus, I am the answer. And when we've dealt with those things, he continues, I'm going to show you a life that is utterly fulfilling, that is full of light and meaning and hope. Why does Jesus say those things? Well, if you look at the reverse of the green question sheet, I've given you a quotation from one of the most famous works C.S. Lewis ever wrote, Mere Christianity. He says this, and I quote, God made us, invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is meant to run on petrol, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn, or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. And that is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. End quote. Well, come back to John 5. And I want you please to notice that the invalid never actually answers Jesus' question. It's as if he's so comfortable in his disability that he can't begin to think about what life might be like if he were healed. Because, of course, to be healed would mean facing things that were new and unfamiliar. New relationships. New responsibilities. A new outlook on the world having a new story to share with family and friends. Can you see that the extraordinary thing is that while the Lord Jesus is holding out his hands to the whole world, offering to make us well, many people simply don't want it. And we're not just talking about unbelievers here. Many Christians are just like that. The prospect of change is actually more frightening than staying as they are, carrying crushing pain from their past, stuck with entrenched patterns of sin in their lives, 
too frightened to surrender their lives completely to Jesus. And that, of course, is what the Building on the Rock workshops are all about, isn't it? We want Christians to seize the opportunity to respond to Jesus' offer to make them well by finding out how to deal with the pain and the sin that holds them back. But my friend, what about you this morning? Do you want to get well? It's the question we weren't expecting. Well then, secondly, please notice the sign we mustn't miss. Verses 8 to 13. Now, despite this man's very unpromising response, Jesus says to him in verse 8, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And at once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. Now that, of course, is absolutely marvellous in its own right. This man had been an invalid for 38 years, and before he met Jesus, his muscles and his sinews had been catastrophically and probably permanently weakened. There was absolutely no possibility of this man getting up and walking without an act of supernatural power. But Jesus speaks, and the man who was as good as dead gets his old life back. It's a wonderful miracle of creation. But we can't stop there. Because if we're reading John's Gospel carefully, we're going to be asking, how is this different from any of the other miracles in John's Gospel. At the end of chapter 4, which we haven't looked at together, you can read about it later, Jesus there heals a dying boy with a word. Is this perhaps something like that? Well, I don't think it is. Because here in chapter 5, we find Jesus being persecuted for the first time. You get a hint of it in verse 9b, verse 9b, if you'd like to look at it, where it says that the day on which this took place was a Sabbath, and so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. Notice the obvious thing, that these religious leaders aren't celebrating the marvellous transformation in this man's life. We would expect that, but they don't. In fact, they aren't drawn to Jesus in any positive sense at all. Quite the reverse. Because as the conversation develops, it becomes crystal clear that Jesus is now a marked man. So by the time we get to verse 16, the hostility is right out there in the open. Verse 16 says, Because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Now the question we need to puzzle with is, why did the Jews make such an issue about the Sabbath? Well, the Sabbath was meant to be a day, you see, when God's people would stop working 
in order to remember how God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt and brought them securely into the land. But over the centuries, the Jewish authorities had added endless regulations to Sabbath law. So by the time the Lord Jesus began his ministry, the focus on the Sabbath was entirely on man's performance rather than the grace and power of Almighty God. And the penalty for disobedience to Sabbath law was death. So the really important question is why did Jesus choose to perform so many of his miracles on the Sabbath? I mean, why not do them a day before or a day afterwards and stay out of trouble? The answer is that the Sabbath was meant to be not just a celebration of what God had already done in the past, but also a sign of what he would do in the future. Now this might be fresh for some of you, so I want you please to keep a finger in John chapter 5 and turn with me to Isaiah 35 on page 503. Because here we have a picture, a prophecy of God's promise of what he would do in the future. Isaiah 35, page 503, and we're going to pick it up at verse 3. While you're turning there, let me tell you that the context here is that after centuries of disobedience, God's people are in exile in Babylon. And now suddenly... Isaiah announces that just as God had rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, so God will come again in person to bring his people safely home. If you like, there will be a second exodus. Now what's it all about? Verse 3. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way, (coughs) Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution, he will come to save you. Now pause on that. It's an absolutely marvellous promise, but how will we know when God has come in person? Verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Pause again. Isaiah, you see, is saying to his readers then and this morning that when you see these marvellous miracles of healing, the blind seeing, uh, the deaf hearing, the lame walking, That will be the sign that God has come in person to save his people. Now, quite obviously, Isaiah was not talking about the return from Babylon. Because when that happened, there were no miracles and precious little joy. Now, the context in Isaiah tells us that he's looking ahead 
to a time when God would intervene in human history to rescue all of us from the terrible effects of the fall and bring in a world without any of the horrible things that are pulling our world apart today. Now look down to verse 8 in Isaiah 35. A highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it. So Isaiah's talking about a way. That's familiar language. We know that Jesus talks about himself as a way. Who's going to be on the way? And where is the way going? Verse 9. No lion will be there, nor will any ferocious beast get up on it. They won't be found there. Now look at this. But only the redeemed will walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads, Gladness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee away. So in answer to the question, why did Jesus deliberately choose to perform so many miracles on the Sabbath, there can only be one answer. He was showing that God had arrived in person to bring in the new Sabbath age of healing and wholeness. For the redeemed of verse 9 and the ransomed of verse 10, the new age of everlasting joy and gladness has begun. Of course, we all know perfectly well that the perfection of that experience uh, still lies in the future for the day when Christ returns. But in John chapter 5, the healing on the Sabbath is telling us that with the coming of Jesus, the new age promised in Isaiah has started. Now, Today, uh, people complain, well, we don't see miracles like this anymore. Where is the evidence of this marvellous new age? But you see, the Lord Jesus would say, every time he opens a person's eyes and they are born again, we're actually witnessing the greatest miracle of all. Because their ears are unstopped, so they can hear the truth of the gospel for the first time. And instead of limping anxiously through life, not knowing what on earth to make of it all, they found a purpose and they found a direction they didn't have before. And their tongues have been loosened to shout for joy, celebrating this marvellous transformation in their lives. And so surely, brothers and sisters, one of the challenges for you and me in John chapter 5 is how do we respond to that? You know, when our friends or when a family member is converted, do we we celebrate 
this great transformation and see it as a wonderful confirmation that God is at work among us? Or are we so blind? Are we so wrapped up in our own disabilities that we miss the sign completely? And in our hearts we're sceptical and even hostile, just like the Jewish authorities. Jesus has something to say about that. And so lastly, in verses 14 and 15, there is the command we can't ignore. Now, one of the themes that runs through the early chapters of John's Gospel is that Jesus knows absolutely everything about us before we even open our mouths. So back in John chapter 1, Philip goes to tell Nathanael that he's found the Messiah. Like many people today, Nathanael is extremely sceptical until Jesus tells him precisely what he was doing when Philip told him, even though Jesus was miles away at the time. We see it again in chapter 4, when Jesus tells the Samaritan woman, who he's never met before, that he knows she's had five husbands, and the man she's living with now is not her husband. And now again, at the end of our passage, in chapter 5, Jesus finds the man in the temple, and in verse 14, he says to him, See, you're well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. Now, at first sight, I think what is really rather puzzling there is that Jesus doesn't specify what the sin is. We would expect him to do that, wouldn't we? Is Jesus perhaps saying that there is a sort of direct connection between a particular sin and that man's former disability? I don't think that can be right. Because a little later, Jesus and his disciples come across a man who had been blind from birth, and the disciples ask the same question, don't they? They say, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, neither. This happened that the work of God might be displayed in his life. So I don't think that here, Jesus is making a point about the connection between sin and sickness in that man's life. Rather, the clue is in the ominous warning Jesus gives that if the man does not stop sinning, something worse may happen. What could possibly be worse than being an invalid for 38 years? Well, remember the context. At this point in John's Gospel, the context is Jewish unbelief. Do you remember at the beginning of the book, John already told us that Jesus came to his own people, to the Jews, but his own people did not receive him, he says. In other words, they didn't believe in him. This man is a tragic example of that. He's just had an unmistakable experience of the mercy and grace of God. And yet, when he was asked to say who healed him, 
Notice John's comment in verse 13. Can we all see verse 13? The man who was healed had no idea who it was. Now, friends, that is the point of the story. To have an unmistakable experience of the grace of God in Christ and yet still refuse to believe, still refuse to confess Christ, is a very serious sin indeed. It is the mark of stubborn unbelief. And what Jesus is saying, you see, is without repentance, we will be separated from God and his people, not just for 38 years, but forever. See, I think you and I tend to think, don't we, or many people think, that um, unbelief is morally neutral. That it's a legitimate position for us to take, having carefully weighed up all the evidence. My friend, you won't find that anywhere in the New Testament. One of the more astute Christian writers in recent years is a man called Os Guinness. Listen to what he says about this. Quote, In the Bible, unbelief is not passive. An innocent but inaccurate view of the world that has unfortunately got it wrong at just a few points. Rather, Unbelief is active, driven by a dark dynamism. End quote. In other words, the, the Bible's perspective on unbelief is that it's driven by evil. And that's why Jesus says to this man, as he says to everyone today who's heard the gospel and seen its effects, but refuse to come to Christ, stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. Well, it seems that the, the man in this story got the point. Because in verse 15, we're told that he went away and told everybody that it was Jesus who had made him well. What about you? What about you? Let us pray. Lord Jesus, all of us were just like those poor, broken people at the pool of Bethesda spiritually blind, limping through life, believing all kinds of myths and lies. But you entered our world. You came to us with a wonderful offer of healing and wholeness. And in the new birth, you have given us a taste of life in the world to come when we will enter Zion singing and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Lord Jesus, lift our eyes above the sorrows and difficulties of this world and make us pe people who joyfully celebrate 
what you have done for us and especially as Easter approaches make us bold to encourage others to respond to your gracious offer to give them a fresh start to make them well so that they too might give you thanks and praise thank you Lord Amen.